I invite you to turn with me now to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. It's, uh, I'm, I'm in a brief series with you now through the book of Isaiah and exploring a kind of thematic thread in the book. And so this morning I want to turn with you to this famous account of God's calling Isaiah to be his prophet. Uh, and, and the main claim that I want us to see through this series is, is just this. You become what you worship. You become what you worship. That's the basic claim I'm exploring. And uh, we began last time in the opening verses of Isaiah. And it may be helpful to, to just before we read, to rehear verses 2 and 3 of, of Isaiah 1, the prophet had said, Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. And I want to explore with you now this question. How does God transform this not knowing, this not understanding? And we'll see this morning that this is basic, central to Isaiah's call. So listen uh, now to Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. In the year that King Uzziah died... I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts." Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, 
until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Well, if you're mindful at all of Reformation Day tomorrow, uh, you might have felt a surge of hope when you saw this passage, Isaiah 6, and you might have thought to yourself, surely we can find our way from Isaiah's Here Am I to Martin Luther's Here I Stand. And I'm confident that there is a way, even if that path might involve jumping through some homiletical hedges. But I want to highlight for us uh, another, this morning I want to highlight for us another insight of of, uh, Luther's, of Martin Luther's. In his larger catechism, which is written for instruction and discipleship, Martin Luther asks about the the meaning of, of the first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. And in doing so, he gives us a, an easy and a useful definition of idolatry. He says, whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. Trust and faith of the heart alone make both God and idol. Whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. This passage in Isaiah is about, uh, even we might say, uh, this passage is is about that question, what does your heart cling to and and rely upon? And in view of the significance of of this chapter for, for Isaiah, that here is the very call of the prophet, we might even say, this is what the ministry of Isaiah is about. What does your heart cling to, rely upon? What is your God? As I indicated, I want to press us, though, not just asking this question, uh, what is your God? But I want to draw our attention to, uh, along with that, to this, to this main claim. You become what you worship. That question, what is your God, it becomes basic and essential for us because of uh, what this passage shows us. You become what you worship. The, the New Testament scholar G.K. Beale, he, he shows off his skills in alliteration and he puts it this way. He says, we resemble what we revere. We resemble what we revere either for ruin or for restoration. So we're drawn into Isaiah 6 to 
ask these questions and to see this basic truth. And this passage is, is made up of two parts. On the one hand, uh, there is what Isaiah sees, verses 1 through 7. And then in verses 8 through 13, what Isaiah hears. What Isaiah sees, what Isaiah hears, uh, and uh, what, I, what we will see is that these two parts of the passage have a way of, of contrasting with one another. We are drawn with Isaiah into this glorious environment of worship and adoration uh, God's, with God's glory and his splendor set before him. That's what Isaiah sees. And then we hear his commission and, what, and we hear what Isaiah hears. And through his ministry, we will find the people resembling the very objects of their worship. So first, this, this marvelous passage gives us what Isaiah sees. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord uh, sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the, the train of his robe uh, filled the temple. The, this vision of Isaiah is, is marked very significantly for us with this uh, chronological introduction. In the year that King Uzziah died. Scholars debate uh, about the intricacies of biblical chronology, whether this was, we know this was somewhere between 747 and 736 BC. But what you can observe is that Isaiah is not so, so much concerned with the, the precise year, but with the event, the year King Uzziah died. Uzziah's reign was one of political success and prosperity. William Dumbrell writes, never had the nation been in better heart uh, since, the, since the time of Solomon. Never had they stood on such a, such a flood tide of fortune. And over against this, this supposed power and, and, and prosperity of Uzziah now come to an end, Isaiah sees the Lord sitting on a throne. And the first thing to say then is that this vision of Isaiah uh, his, and his commission they impress upon us the kingship of God. But also, this is striking. It's in this great moment of prosperity that God appears to Isaiah and gives him a picture and a message of, coming, of a coming total demolition. Cities lying wastes. Houses turned over. Isaiah sees this vision in the temple, but the temple was made to be a meeting place between heaven and earth. God's, 
God's dwelling place. And, and that is just how Isaiah experiences the temple here. Uh, we, we see in, in the passage, we see some objects of the physical temple mentioned, but it's the heavenly throne room of God of which we are most aware. For example, in, in the temple symbolism, in the innermost room, there was the Ark of the Covenant, thought of as, as the footstool of God's throne. And above the Ark, there were the wings of the cherubim that, that provided the kind of base to, of God's throne. But here, with this description uh, of God, he is high and lifted up and the, the claim that the passage uh, makes is, is this, that just the edge or the hem of his robe fills the temple. That is, we get a sense for the, the impossibility that this temple, with all its rich symbolism, would contain God. Uh, the, the dimensions of the Jerusalem temple are far too small, inadequate. And then there are these throne room attendants, maybe inspired by the, the wings of the cherubim that, that would have been seen there, but they too exceed the, the mere kind of physical sight of what is physically in the temple. Uh, Isaiah sees these mysterious seraphim, some sort of winged supernatural creature, no doubt intimidating. And these indicate the, the kind of the danger of Isaiah's position. Even these powerful creatures cover their eyes cover themselves with their wings before God's presence. So the temple is the setting for the vision, but it's the Jerusalem temple as a site in which heaven intrudes. Everything in the vision is meant to communicate a, a deeper dimension of, of reality uh, to which this temple and the symbols could only gesture. That's the scene. And then what happens in the vision? Here's what we see. The, the, the vision of God, uh, it, it draws Isaiah into an environment of worship. Uh, there's a kind of liturgical uh, movement to the, to the remainder of the vision. So, you have one seraph calling to another with a kind of antiphonal call and response, uh, holy, holy, holy. And then with this claim that God is, uh, and with this claim that God is holy, 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 we're to think not just of his moral perfection, but uh, rather of God's holiness is, is the whole perfection of his character, everything that sets God apart as God. We hear this 
hymnic call and response, and then the remainder of the verse sounds like Psalm 72. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. We are being drawn into a liturgy, a moment of worship. And it's an extraordinary moment because at the sounding out of of this song, the the visible manifestations of, uh, of God's presence appear. Earthquake, smoke filling the room. An awesome, uh, it's this awesome environment that we are drawn into. And then finally, Isaiah's response fills out the liturgy for us in the, with this desperate confession of, of sin. Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And from that confession of sin, we're led to an assurance of pardon with this moment of, of burning and and, and purging, the angel declares, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. The whole of, the, of what Isaiah sees, it draws us into this incredible moment of, of worship and adoration, of confession and forgiveness in God's presence. It's very different with what Isaiah hears. Imagine opening your email and opening your trending at Trinity on Friday evening and seeing a, a new a plug, an announcement for a new Sunday school class. You know, and the plug to entice you into the fellowship hall, it reads, this class promises to render you completely uncomprehending. You will hear many things, but you won't understand a bit. You'll see many great points, but none of them will make sense. Over the course of this class, your spiritual heart, your, your senses will grow dull. How's that, right? How's that for course objectives? But this is Isaiah's puzzling call. His, he's commissioned by the great king. He's sent out, and this is what he's to do. And it's a puzzling and difficult call. Can, can God be righteous, we wonder, can God be righteous and just in hardening Israel and then condemning them for their failure to respond. What can we make of this? And the commission that God gives Isaiah, though, what, what becomes important for us to see is no arbitrary judgment. It's no arbitrary judgment. Instead, in Isaiah's commission, we are... Uh, we are coming to the central claim of this brief series, we become what we worship. I quoted 
Dr. Beale earlier who's, who's worked this out in detail, but the, the puzzling nature of Isaiah's call, it, it draws upon a deep tradition in Israel. And so you can find it in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy predicts that God's people will abandon him and it says, you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands, that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. And then later in the book, it says of the people to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand, eyes to see, ears to hear. Deuteronomy purposely juxtaposing for us first idols that neither hear nor see and a people lacking understanding who cannot see or hear or understand. You resemble what you revere. Or Psalm 115, it draws on this same idea and describes idols, the work of human hands with mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, ears but do not hear. And then it concludes with these words, those who make them become like them. It's the same for Isaiah. He has spoken and, and will speak of idolatry in, uh, in great, a great deal. And in time, we will, we will see him drawing these things more, even more explicitly together so that in Isaiah 44, uh, we will encounter idols, mocked, uh, idols who are, who are mocked and who neither see nor know. And then likewise, a people of whom the book says they know not. They do not, nor do they discern, for God has shut their eyes. Do you see? What's the point? Isaiah's commission is not an arbitrary hardening of hearts. Rather, it's a hardening that brings out, that reveals the very effect of, of Israel's sin of idolatry. Uh, it, it's a fitting judgment upon a people who have forsaken Yahweh and pursued idols. And so, in some ways, it's a judgment. In some ways, it simply exposes what is already in the people. They become, and we become, what we worship. If we worship idols, deaf and blind and powerless and uncomprehending, we become like them. Well, in response to the commission, Isaiah has, has these words. He cries, how long? How long? It sounds it like the kind of cry you would expect in a psalm of, of lament, a, a complaint to God, a prayer. How long until you come, O Lord, and, and deliver? And then God communicates this terrifying prospect. He, he shows the extent of their judgment, which is thorough and total. Uh, for all appearances, thorough and total, so that if there is hope here, it is hard to see. 
But now with these two parts of the passage, what Isaiah sees, what Isaiah hears, we are able to step back and to take in this contrast. Isaiah seeing and beholding God the King in his holiness, uh, drawn into this stunning scene of worship. The people, lifeless, imperceptive in their idolatry, rushing toward this heartbreaking judgment. And what should be our response? What should be our response seeing the, these two parts of, of Isaiah's call together? we can understand all the more the response of Isaiah in the presence of God. Woe is me, for I am, I am lost. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of Almighty. Isaiah's commission as it ends up exposing, it ends up exposing us with the people of Israel. We recognize our own uh, reverencing clinging to, trusting in other things besides God. And so we might confess, not just my lips, my eyes, ears, lips, hands, feet, all of me has been misdirected in sin. Woe is me. But if this passage, if it causes you to cry, I am ruined. This is, the end, in the end, a deeply hopeful passage. A deeply uh, hopeful uh, passage because God's word is living and active. God's word is living and active, convincing you of sin and misery, leading you to cry, woe is me, but even more, enlightening your minds in the knowledge of Christ. Transforming and renewing your wills so that you embrace Christ as he is offered to you in the gospel. And through the Spirit, this word uh, is able to give you what you need. It's able to give you what you need, namely a heart that sees and worships God. Here's an amazing thing. We hear this word, and this word enables us to see the Lord of glory. We hear this word, and we ourselves are drawn into the Lord's presence, drawn into this worship scene so that we, we too call out, holy, holy, holy. We hear this word and we also hear these words, your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. The Lord's presence, his holiness, his glory so exalted that uh, it, it can in many respects be terrifying to us is also life-giving. You are drawn away from the, 
the deadening and hardening effects of idolatry and you are drawn in to this worship as you hear this vision. Look, the King of glory, holy, holy, holy. The puzzling reality, if we are unprepared, is that Christ comes in the very same way. He comes in the very same mode that we find in Isaiah. His words work in the same way. We read it this morning. He speaks hidden words. He speaks the secrets of the kingdom in parables. His words reveal and conceal. Why? Christ says, uh, it's, it's to expose, to even deepen spiritual imperception that seeing you might never perceive. But also, so that the secrets of the kingdom might be given to you through the powerful work of the Holy Spirit through the word. His words are this way, and so is his work. His, his cross is perhaps the, the deepest of mysteries, of, of parables. That, and so the, the Apostle Paul says uh, that it, it, he calls it a stumbling block. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called both Jews and Gentiles and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God. Think of it. The cross, it does not fit our expectation of how God should behave. It exposes our idolatry in, in desiring a different sort of God, in uh, a God whom we might have and, and be with some other way. But as you draw near to the cross, you find this very God that we meet in Isaiah high and lifted up. Drawing near with forgiveness. Exalted in glory full of life. And you are enabled to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, who is to come. And also you sing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Let's pray together. Our Lord, our great God and King, we worship you this day. We bow our hearts before you in your presence, trembling and in awe that you would so draw us near. 
conscious of how our sin and our spiritual imperception has made us unfit for your presence, conscious all the more of Christ who through his cross and through the word of his cross has claimed us as his own, is at work renewing us, giving us eyes to see. We thank you for Christ, high and lifted up, who shows us your glory and who uh, transforms our hearts so that we are, uh, so that we learn to no longer revere and cling to and trust the things of this world, but so that we might revere and cling to and trust you, our great God and King. Do this transforming work uh, this day, even through, uh, even this day, through your spirit. We pray in the name of Christ, our Savior, and we say together, amen.